Wonderful. If you're giving your offering, getting coffee, trying to cut a bagel, make yourself come on in when you get an opportunity. But for the rest of us, it's time to start. Anybody want to learn their Bible today? Right? It's steak and eggs, meat and potatoes this morning. All right? I had a guide last week, um, Paul. I don't know if you all know Dr. Paul. He paid me one of the best compliments. He paid me one of the best compliments. Like I've, I, He said, man, you don't bunt, man. It's like, no bunting for you. I'm like, no, we swing for the fences, man. We go for it. If you're going to do it, you got to do it, right? Right? We got to represent Jesus well. We're going to talk about last things. So I'm going to do this week and probably next week. This is a huge topic. It's called a mega theme in the Bible. Right? There are themes... There are, there are lesser themes, there are dominant themes, and there are something called mega themes. The return of Jesus is what would be considered a mega theme. 318 times in the New Testament alone, this, this subject is mentioned. Over 88 plus times in the Old Testament. That's close to, if not exceeding, 400 verses on one subject. 400 verses on one subject. That would be considered a mega theme. And so it's important that we understand this. If God spent this much time trying to get to communicate this or deliver this or to lay this out for us, we need to understand it. And one of the clearest um, understandings of what is actually going to happen in the times and the seasons that we live in is the book of Daniel. So we're going to look at uh, Daniel chapter 9 a little bit today. Daniel is such a... um, accurate book that it has had incredible critics two of the most criticized old testament books are the book of isaiah and the book of daniel and the reason is because as their prophecies concerning the messiah were so point specific that they couldn't possibly have happened before the fact isaiah predicted and called forth the exact death of jesus how he died wounded for our transgressions pierced for our iniquities he he predicted all the things that would happen the latter rain everything that would happen following jesus and all of the predictive prophecies that isaiah gave were on point and people believed well that can't be right daniel not daniel's even more clear Daniel predicts what will happen. He predicts the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah will be cut off. He predicts exactly what will happen in the final days. Daniel was entire, was super critiqued until they found the scroll of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls, oldest on record. And they compared it to the existing book of Daniel and they realized, wow, this was actually written <laughs> long ago. This is, so let me give you the setting for the book of Daniel. Okay. Everybody say it. Jesus wants me to know my Bible. Say this. It is important as a believer to have a working knowledge of Scripture. Right? We've never, been, we've never had more power in the Bible, yet we've never been more biblically illiterate. Our generation is very biblically illiterate. It doesn't mean everybody's up there espousing, you know, we don't need to shoot scriptures like a machine gun, but we should understand the ideas and the concepts and we should understand historical timelines, at least in generally, you know, most believers should. So I'm going to help you out a lot with that. Some of you, you've heard me teach this before. I do it like in a summary form. Israel was one nation. And David, after David had a son, his name was Solomon. After Solomon died, the nation divided. And Israel, the nation of Israel, was divided into two parts. The northern part became the nation of what? Anybody know? It was called Israel. The south became Judah, right? 
So if you ever read your Bible and you're reading the Bible, you're got, the Lord will be talking about Israel. He'll be talking about Judah. Well, you're thinking, well, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about two different nations because the nations split in two. Solomon dies. The nation splits in two. Israel became the north. Judah became the south. The north was defeated by empire, an empire called the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians defeated the north, conquered the north, and basically eradicated them as a people. They were the Assyrian people. They intermingled. They intermarried. They deported the Jews. They they forced other nations to breed with them. They separated homes and marriages. They made you. You're not married anymore. You're marrying her. You're going to do that. They They forced them to intermingle. They mixed their bloodline. And they gave birth to a race of people called the Samaritans. If you read your New Testament, then you know why. They hated Samaritans. They considered Samaritans half-breeds. They considered Samaritans mixed blood of a hated people called the Assyrians. So this is where the Samaritans came from. They weren't some people. They were Jews mixed with kind of like, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Lord of the Rings, you know, where the, the elves were mixed with orcs or whatever. And they became, you know, that crazy looking creature thing they were they used to be elves anyway so they they intermingled they created a group of people called the um the samaritans they lived there throughout time but judah remained intact the southern kingdom was never conquered until the babylonians came about 150 years later a king by the name of nebuchadnezzar came i'm giving you the setting for daniel so you understand where this is coming from nebuchadnezzar came down he conquered judah crazy story ah crazy story he actually came three times. He didn't come once. He came three times. First time he comes, he's conquering the city. His old man dies. So he's got to whip the, whip the army around because he's got to go back and consolidate power. You know, your dad dies. All the brothers are clamoring for the throne and you're thousands of miles away. Well, what's going to happen? Chances are you're not getting the throne. And so Nebuchadnezzar whipped the army around, went back. So while Nebuchadnezzar leaves, the Lord's going, repent, repent repent and they're like nah we don't need to repent nebuchadnezzar comes back the next time he conquers the city and he puts their government in place he puts his own government there so he takes jews and he says okay martin you look like a guy who can listen to me the nebuchadnezzar so i'm going to put you in charge so they put their own king on the throne well the jewish king that they put on the throne revolted against nebuchadnezzar so then he came back a third time and the third time he came he burned the whole city to the ground so it's kind of like you know, this, this, this crazy story. And when he burned the city to the ground, he took exiles. So they would take the exiles with him. He took the Jewish people with them. The first time he took a part of them. The second time he took all of them and he marched them in chains. The first time he took them and they were kind of like ambassadors of a conquered nation. So he took them kind of peacefully, if you want to call it that, the first time. The second time he took them forcefully because they wouldn't listen to him. So the Israeli people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were in another nation called Babylon. And there was a prophetic word given over them. And I don't have time to get into all of the substance of this, just so that you understand where where Daniel's coming from when he's talking about this. The prophetic word given to the prophet Jeremiah was that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. They didn't know when that timetable started. But they knew that they were going to be exiled for 70 years. And so Daniel, coming into the book of Daniel, Daniel is praying. You want one good idea about the success of Daniel? Daniel prayed. You see him praying all the time. He's not only just praying and petitioning, he's praying and listening. Do you know you got two ears and one mouth? That's what my old man used to tell me. It means listen twice as much as you talk, Kevin. You know, prayer is both speaking, petitioning, and meditative prayer, listening. 
And so Daniel would practice these things. So you see Daniel praying. Daniel's there. He's in Babylon. Daniel went with the first group. Daniel was a young boy. He was probably 16 years old when, when this happened. He's probably in his 70s by now because he's going to wait a little bit longer before the exile's over. But Daniel had been there. He had watched governments change. He had watched history pass before his eyes. He's been in Babylon for 70 years, and he's asking the Lord, when are we going home, Right? Your word said we're here 70 years. I know it's been close to that because I know how old I am. You know, when are we going home? And out of nowhere, as he's worshiping, he's worshiping, he's acknowledging God, he's acknowledging the sin of his people. Now, this is an important consideration for some of you more spiritually inclined people. Daniel is in bondage in Babylon, not because of anything he did. Daniel's bondage in Babylon is in direct relationship to the sins of his ancestors. He didn't sin. There's no record where Daniel did anything that constituted him going. Daniel was faithful to the Lord. And so what he's doing is he's praying. He's acknowledging his participation because he's just basically a Hebrew by bloodline. And he's acknowledging the sin of his ancestors as it relates to their revolt against God. Sins of the ancestors. He's in a place he doesn't want to be. He can't get out of it because someone in his family line did something wrong. And the enemy is holding a right over them. You say it all goes away with Jesus. Does it? Does it? It does go away with Jesus. But ladies and gentlemen, you have to enforce the rights of inheritance over your own bloodline. You have the authority. And if you don't exercise the authority over your bloodline, it will stay with you. If you think it's just a Shazam moment and everybody's free, look at Christians. We're not all free. We're not all free. Devout, loving people, yet remained in bondages, can't get out of places because of something their ancestor did that invoked a right of inheritance over them. You have to go back and reclaim with the authority that you have. You have to go back and repent on their behalf. You said, I don't understand that. You have to repent for your ancestral sins. Somewhere, somehow, it's exactly what Daniel's doing. You see it all through the scriptures. It's very much in the Bible. You say, well, in the Bible... They asked Jesus, who sinned this man or his father that he's in this condition? And he said, neither him nor his sins, neither him nor his, he didn't sin nor his ancestors sinned in relationship to this condition. Jesus didn't say there's no such thing. You see, he didn't say, oh, there's no such thing as that. What are you guys talking about? He said, this condition, good question, is not a result of ancestral and it's not a result of personal sin. This sin is here so that I can manifest something so that the glory of the Lord may be fulfilled. But there are instances. Some of you, you've been in poverty for generations. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered it? If everybody in your family has diabetes, every man in your family has diabetes, it's not something genetic. Have you ever considered that? I mean, just a thought. Have you ever considered that every third generation, there's a divorce? No marriage makes it past seven years in your family? You ever thought about that? Is that, is that, is that normal? I don't think so. I had a woman tell me one time, she's like, yeah, every family, every, every, our marriage is it's typical in my family. No marriage lasts beyond tw- seven years. And I'm like, and you think that's normal? You, you think that's just accepted? Well, it's just accepted that every guy, when he gets married, becomes an alcoholic. That's just the way it's been in our family. It's been that way for a hundred years. So that's normal. It's completely normal. Could it be a right of visitation? Could it be something ancestral that is visited upon your family? Is everybody in your family is in poverty? Every business, every, your, your family come from a family of entrepreneurs, but you look down 10 generations and you've got, every, everyone was an entrepreneur and every one of them they had a failed business. Is that normal? Is that normal? No. 
We have to look at these things. We have to consider these things. That's another story. Anyway, back to the subject at hand here. All right. So the North defeated 120, 120 years later, Babylon takes Judah. Judah's now in, in Babylon. Daniel's praying. During this time, there's a lot of governmental changes. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. This is important. You'll learn a little bit more about this next week. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. So Daniel watches an administration change, right? He not only watched an administration change, he watched, he watched Nebuchadnezzar go down. He watched his son, Belshazzar, well, his grandson actually. So he was there with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's another story. But Belshazzar was, was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, not his son. And so Belshazzar, he watched the, the throne of the Babylonians go from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. Then he watched um, uh, uh, Azaharis conquer. Then he watched Darius. And then he watched Artaxerxes. I don't think he got to Artaxerxes, but he definitely saw Ahasuerus and Darius. And Daniel's praying, right? Again, historical. I get caught up in the history sometimes. It's like my, it's like my zone. I get into the history. He's praying. Right? And he says, while I was praying. So what's he praying for? When are we going home? Right? Holy Spirit, when are we going home? While I was praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my ancestors, Israel, and I was presenting my supplication before the Lord for the holy mountain of God. In other words, when are we going back to the mountain in Jerusalem? When are we going back to Mount Moriah? While I was speaking in prayer, the man, which is the angel, Gabriel, they show up as a man. He showed up as a man whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So he's worshiping in the evening. They would worship in the morning. They would worship in the noonday. And they would worship in the night. They would pray three times a day. Why three? Well, God's a trinity God. God is reinforcing three in one. From the rising of the sun until it's going down, the name of the Lord will be praised. So the Jews would get up in the morning. They would worship the Lord. In the noonday, they would worship the Lord. When the sun was going down, they would worship the Lord. So Daniel's worshiping the Lord at the evening sacrifice, the evening offering. And the angel shows up. Isn't it crazy how God, God will speak to you in times of worship? That's when he speaks to you. I always tell people when they come, come for worship. Don't observe the worship. Enter the worship. Get a book and a pen. Put it in your pocket. Put it on the table. Because during the worship and that encounter and that experience, the Lord is going to speak to you. He speaks to you more out of worship experiences than he does. And I used to do it when I first became a Christian. I'd pray the whole week. I'd come to church. I'd start worshiping. And I started getting the answers to my prayers in worship. And then I realized, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm so smart. And I'd walk out the door and I'd forget what he told me. (laughs) I used to keep a pen and a paper. This is when I was a young believer. I used to keep a pen and a paper in my back pocket. And I'd be worshiping in the middle of the song. And the Lord would answer me and I'd I'd be scribbling. And then I'd go back to worshiping in the middle of the song and I'd pull out my pen and I'd start scribbling again. Because he speaks to you in the atmosphere of worship. Don't dull your sentence. That's when your senses are most heightened to what the Lord is saying is in worship. Because you're beyond yourself. Come on. (laughs) Some of you are like, can we sing again? Can we sing some more? I miss that. And I really need some answers. (laughs) So the angel shows up. Anytime in the Bible when the angel shows up, say it with me. People freaked out. They freaked out, man. Because there's this angel. Boom, I'm on the scene. He just shows up. And so this angel shows up on the scene. And Daniel's kind of looking at him like, okay, all right. Uh, what's going on here? I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm totally freaked out. Okay, Gabriel, I've seen you before. And what's the angel say to him? First words out of the angel's mouth. You are greatly loved. Do you want to know what the Lord's first words to you are? You are greatly loved. Not, where have you been? 
I saw what you did last night. I saw you coming around the rock smoking that cigarette. I heard that Jay-Z song in your, ha- in your car. He's not, he doesn't say anything like that. He looks at the minute he sees you, his word to you is you are greatly loved. That's the first, that's the first message. The angel, the angel does not speak on his own behalf. He's a messenger angel. He's speaking what the Lord told him. And he tells him, listen, Gabriel, you're going to go down there and you're going to tell him this. And the first thing I want you to let this guy know is that he is loved by me. First thing. It's the love of Christ that compels us. You are loved and accepted in the beloved. And because you are loved and accepted, we do not follow Jesus out of rules and regulations. We follow him because my, I follow my father because he loves me. I don't follow him because there's some, mat, there's some order and some restriction that's over me. When I, I might have come to Jesus because I was freaking out and I didn't want to go to hell. But if you're still in the place, you free, if that brings you to Jesus, the fear, of God, the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. If you come to Jesus because you don't want to go to hell, hey, good for you. But you shouldn't stay in that place of fear. You come to Jesus out of that context, but you're supposed to learn that you're loved. In perfect love, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. I have no fear of the Lord. I have reverence and respect and honor. I don't obey him out of fear or of retribution. I obey him out of love and honor. My father loves me. My father's for me and not against me. He loves me on my worst day. My father's always glad to see me. He loves me the minute he sees me. He just j- drops everything. That's how he says exactly what's going on here. He didn't come and say, sit down, Daniel. I've got something to tell you. He came. He said, first thing I want you to know, you are greatly loved. And he says, in answer to your question, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Daniel's talking about 70 years. And the Lord's saying 70 weeks. Everybody say the 70 weeks. Our 70 series, 70 series is, I think that's the right word, of seven years. So the angel comes to him and he tells him this thing called 70 weeks. This is a huge story. 70 weeks. 70 weeks are determined for you and for your people and the holy people. And he tells him these 70 weeks, there's a prophetic timetable that's being handed to you. Jesus is saying to the, through the angel, I'm giving you a map of not only what will happen in the near, I'm giving you a map of what will happen in the far. And it's 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years. That's what he's talking about. 70 periods of seven years divided into two phases. First phase, second phase. Where are we? We're in between the two. That's where we are. Phase one's been accomplished. Phase two, we're waiting for. And he tells him exactly what's going to happen. He tells him, this is what's going to happen before it even happens. This is what's going to happen in phase one. Phase one will end. When will phase two begin? Phase two will begin when this happens. Phase two will start. Right? And, but in between the two, there's going to be a gap of time. 70 weeks to do six things. So there's 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven years. To do six things. Number one, to finish transgression. Number two, to, or, number two, to end, to, to, well, to finish transgression, it was supposed to be sin. To finish sin, to make an end of transgression, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy and the most holy place. So there's six things that are going to happen in this 70, seven, 70 weeks period. The first one, so okay, I want you to understand something. Say this with me. Prophetic is near and far. Okay? So when God is speaking prophetically, and the prophetic word still is alive today, oftentimes there's a near application and there's a far application. If I have two sheets of paper and I'm staring at them, right? It looks like there's one sheet of paper. But if I was to elevate the second sheet of paper, I would see that there's two sheets of paper. 
You understand that? And so Daniel, oftentimes the prophets are looking down the timeline and they can only see the near. But if the timeline gets elevated, they'll see that there's two points to that word. There's not just one. The timeline alters. You understand what I'm saying? I I don't have my handheld, so I can't kind of do the two paper thing. But if you're looking at it and there's two people, but then if you raise up the hill, then you're like, oh, wow, there's actually two points. So the prophecy that God is giving Daniel is a near and a far prophecy. There are six things related to what the Messiah will do. Number one, to end the rebellion, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. That's what he's saying. So he's saying within this 70 week time period, the Messiah is going to come. He articulates this a lot clearer in a minute. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to end the rebellion. End it. I don't know if you know about this, but the Bible says that before you came to Christ, you were an enemy of God. You didn't want anything to do with him especially through Jesus. It might have been God as you understand him to be, but you were not yielded and submitted to Jesus and you were opposed to everything he's had. Bible says that before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. We were in rebellion against the Lord. We were hostile towards him. Bible says that the carnal mind, the natural mind, the mind of men is hostile or the enemy of God. But the mind of Christ, seeing as he sees, understanding as he understands, is life and peace. But the mind of, the, the mind of man is hostile to God. Enemies. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot vain things? Take counsel together against the Lord and his Christ, saying, We shall not have you rule over us. We will break your bonds asunder. We're going to make up our own God, but you won't be it. Man's rebellion. Jesus, through the cross, makes provision for the rebels to come home. He makes provision for there to be a peace offering between you and him. You can't offer the peace. He offers it himself. There's nothing you can do to bring peace. But Jesus is the peace offering. He's the scapegoat. He's the one who offers and extends peace. He's the offended party, yet he's the one offering us peace. You know, God didn't offend us. We offended him. We separated ourselves from him and we're hostile, living our own lives, doing our own thing, enemies of God. And through Jesus, he offers us peace, reconciliation. So the Messiah will end the hostilities. He has Romans five, one, since there, you've been justified through faith. We now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's a near and a far. In the near, we experience that in the near. When you come to Jesus, peace comes into your soul. The restlessness leaves. You feel loved for the first time. Guilt and shame are gone. You don't know what you're doing, but at least you've experienced that. The far, Jesus, in the far, when Christ comes in the fullness of his kingdom, he will completely and totally do away with sin. So it is a near fulfillment and it is a far fulfillment, but this part has been fulfilled in the near. The second is to make an end of transgression. You know what transgression means? Everybody say this with me. Say this, sin means to offend, transgression means to cross the line, all right? So the first thing he does is he deals with the offense. The offense is you think you're your own God. We push, and the word offend means to push away. So man wanting to be his own God has pushed God away. Man wanting to make God up, we have to all through our culture. I believe education is God. I believe humans are God. I believe intellect is God. I believe God's like this. I believe God's like this. I believe God's a monkey and his name is Bimbo. I don't know. You know, this is how we are. No, I mean, serious. We, 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 look at what the people do. That is still, that is the operation of the offense. We've made God in our own image, breaking, therefore, the second commandment, justifying and validating our sin. Even the worship of man. 
When you say, well, I don't know who God is, if there's a God out there, well, we, G, the Bible teaches us that God can be known and his name's Jesus. It's true. It's true. In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the full representation of God. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is perfect theology, as they say. To mend the transgression. In other words, to keep you from crossing a line. We keep crossing the line. We stepped outside of our boundaries. There was a crossing of the line in transgression. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. For by means of his death, for the, for he ended transgression under the first covenant. So under the law, man was condemned for crossing that line. Under the new covenant, Christ has paid the price for it. And so now we can come away from the guilt, the shame, the condemnation that exists because you and I, our ancestors, speaking of ancestral sin, we all bear the ancestral sin of Adam. In case you didn't know that. We're all sinners because we're all born of Adam. We become righteousness because we're no longer born of Adam. We are born again. Born not of the blood of Adam, but born of the blood of Jesus. We're no longer of this earth line. We're of a heavenly bloodline. So there's a transference, there's a shifting. So he ends the transgressions through Jesus. So the, G, Daniel saying to, the angel saying to Daniel, the prophecy is going to do these things. The majority of these things have been fulfilled. Four out of the six are done. There's two left. Well, one's already pending, but the last one is the big one, and it hasn't been done yet. To atone for iniquity. Say this with me. Iniquity is issues in the bloodline. Okay, so we have sin, the offense, which is to push away. We have transgression, which means you stepped over the line, right? And then we have iniquity, which is just something you get from your great grandpappy. It's an issue in your bloodline. It's something that follows you everywhere you go. And so, you know, every human being has issues in their bloodline. Apart from Christ, you've got the biggest issue in your bloodline, sin in your bloodline through Adam. And so Christ in his death, resurrection and death and resurrection deals with the iniquity That's why he shed blood. We are born by blood and by water, right? The womb of Adam was open. The spear, when Adam gave birth, Adam was the first one to give birth, right? I I have nothing but mad respect for women. You make a baby with your body, you give birth to a human being with your body, and you actually feed a human being with your body. I just want to speak to the brothers. What is your contribution to this equation? About 30 seconds, right? Or whatever, the peak moment. I'm, it's about that. All our contribution is that peak moment. That's our contribution. That's it. She now makes it. She now births it. She now feeds it all from her body. What an amazing thing. If you've ever thought about that. But Adam was the first to give birth. His side opened and he gave, and God from his rib gave Eve. And from Eve comes all of mankind. Therefore, all are born of Adam, not of Eve. You see? Jesus had his side. What? Uh-huh. Jesus is called the last. That's right. The last Adam, like the first Adam, his side was pierced. Out of it flowed blood and water. Mankind can now be born again. So when you're not born of the line of the side of Adam, we're born of the side and the bloodline of Jesus. Born not of the blood of the earth, but the blood of heaven. So he deals with iniquity. My bloodline is pure, but I just got to go back and serve notice that the, and make sure the devil understands that. The devil's sitting on your living room eating Doritos on your couch watching TV. He has no right to be there, but he keeps telling you he does. And so you think he's there because you think, well, that devil eating Doritos on my couch has been there as long as I can remember. Well, I don't have the power to kick him out. Who's told you that? 
You have the power now to kick them out. But most of you are so familiar with that devil sitting on your couch eating Doritos. You know, you've learned to love novellas because that's what the devil likes to watch is drama. He really loves drama. Adultery, fornication. Oh, I love that channel. Murder, betrayal, lying, hatred. Oh, this is my channel. You've learned to love that drama too because that's what he watches all the time. He's all about that. You have to go back and serve notice on the power back to your bloodline of where the iniquity took place. Have you ever asked the Lord? I dare you. I seriously, seriously, seriously dare you. The answer will freak you out. You have to shut off your mind because the first thing that's going to happen is you are going to argue with you. So before I even tell you what to do, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. If you ask the questions I'm about to ask you, your mind will immediately tell you no. The Spirit of God will answer you, but you'll immediately go, no way, nah, nah, no way. If you ask the Holy Spirit and you pick an area of your life and you were to ask him, why are the things that are the way they are? If you'd ask him, Holy Spirit, why are the things the way that, why are the things in this area of my life, why are they remain they are? And he were to tell you first word, first impression, he'll tell you, you won't like the answer or he'll tell you and you'll go, oh, that wasn't God. That wasn't God. The Lord will tell you what the problem is in your life. Why? Because your iniquity has been delivered of and the Holy Spirit, you want to know what the Holy Spirit's truly doing? Manifesting the glory of Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit present in the earth today is to do one thing, to take what belongs to him and reveal it to you, to draw from the inheritance that Jesus paid for with blood and to make it known to you and to manifest it through the lives of the people that he's given it to. But you know what the biggest problem is? The Christian is the biggest problem the Holy Spirit has ever encountered. The devil is not the opposition. The believer is the opposition. The devil's been defeated. But Jesus cannot, for the life of him, get the believer on track to, to, to apply the thing. Well, that's just, this, I don't know. Dr. So-and-so from the seminary theological perspective says that it's not true. Well, your Bible says it is. It not only does your Bible say it, evidence bears it out. It can be proven in reality. In the church, we teach people that there's no power. There's power. Ask him. Ask him. Where is it, Lord? What is it? Find something simple. Why do I freak out every time I'm in that environment? You have an issue with your father. I don't have any issues with my father. I forgave my father long ago. I watch Christians argue this all the time. Oh, I've already done deliverance on that. I've already prayed that. Well, then why is it still there? It's there because you think you did it, but you didn't do what he asked you to do. You did it in a way that was comfortable to you. Ah, and we think Jesus doesn't work off your comfort zone. He doesn't. He brings you into a place where it's real uncomfortable with you. Ah, And he goes, I want repentance for that. I want healing for that. I want restoration for that. And unless it's given to me what I want, the appropriation of the power will not apply. The devil holds rights. This is how this stuff works. I'm telling you right now, I live this. I've lived this for 10 years of my life. I'm not reading this from a book. I've watched it before my eyes time and again. And I've watched Christians fight tooth and nail. I tell Sherry, I just go, I don't even, you know, people tell all the time, oh, that can't be the devil. I'm just, I've been saved for 10 years, brother. Don't you know that I have been to Bible school or don't you know? Or I had somebody show me a certificate. They went through a deliverance encounter weekend. And she's like, according to this certificate 
from my deliverance encounter weekend, I am free from all things. Therefore, how can this possibly be? I'm like, you tell me. You think that the enemy is respecting that certificate? Here's my certificate. (laughs) And the devil's going to go, here's mine. You have deep bitterness in your heart towards your mother. You have consciously forgiven her, but you have never dealt with the wounds that you've experienced. Therefore, your soul is wounded and you are reacting out of the wounds of your soul and you have not truly forgiven her. Okay, listen, say this with me. Conscious forgiveness, heaven accepts. Heaven accepts your conscious forgiveness, but that forgiveness in heaven must be applied to the earth. Jesus accepts your, I've forgiven my father. Yes, you have, but you got to serve that notice upon the earth. And that deals with all the wounds, all the pain and all the trauma. And you're holding that. And because you're holding the wounds, the pains and the trauma. So, you know, Jesus paid for your wounds, pains and trauma. So technically your wounds, pains and trauma don't belong to you. They belong to him. And when you keep holding on to your wounds, pains and traumas, he claims it as an act of rebellion and he holds it against you. Not Jesus, the devil. And you say, I don't know how to get rid of my wounds, pains, and traumas. That's called inner healing. And you can't do it alone. Yeah, right? All those who know what I'm talking about. Exactly. So when he says he's made provision for iniquity, he means it. To bring everlasting righteousness. Jesus says, you're the righteous. Say this with me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He is never going to love me anymore than he does right now. I am never going to be more accepted than I am right now. There are positions of honor that you can attain, but your love and acceptance is established in Christ. Your sonship, your daughtership is established. You are loved and accepted. Now you can achieve positions of honor by following him. But honor is different than love and acceptance. Love and acceptance doesn't go away. Honor is something entirely different. Entirely different. True. You are righteous. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. In other words, sin is outside of the law. Righteousness through the law, is the righteous law condemns. But now this righteousness that is given to us, to those who freely receive Christ. You are made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. By virtue of Jesus alone. You say, I didn't do anything. I surrendered my heart to Jesus. That's right. That's right. And you, you paid nothing for it. He paid everything. Right? I love the story of the elevator, man. We get in an elevator. Some, anybody live in buildings? Like high rises? Right? Yeah? Okay. Right? Had some people, they lived in like the 30th floor. Right? It's a fun ride going up to the 30th floor. Wow, this is like that new turbo elevator. It's so fun. You see how easy it is to get to the 33rd floor? You see how easy this is? Didn't cost me anything. I just pushed the button. Yeah, but it cost somebody millions of dollars to put that elevator in. So salvation is. It costs you nothing. Righteousness didn't cost you anything. It cost Jesus everything. And all you got to do is step into the door. That's it. That's it. So in the near, you're made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus comes in his kingdom, you're going to shine like the noonday. The Bible says your righteousness will shine like the noonday. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe we're going to glow in the dark. I don't know. I'm going to be beaming. Woo! Your glow looks good today. So it is yours. <laughs> I mean, ladies, you go to that radiant treatment. You know what I'm talking about? You go to the spa and they put that radiant stuff on your face. Oh, come on. No, not me. I'm naturally radiant at all times, Pastor. I would never put that on my... You ever see... Come on, you guys. You see women, they come out. Like my wife, she comes out and she's got like this cream on. And she's like... She's like glowing. You're going to glow. 
So it's to do all of these things. These are all the things that Jesus did. So Daniel, is, he's been telling Daniel, this is what's going to happen in this period of time. Getting better. Then he says, you're going to seal this vision up until the time of the end. Interesting. So he says, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to be done. But the rest of this prophecy is going to be sealed. It's not going to be understood. I'm sealing it. For what? But you, Daniel, are to seal these words. Seal the book until the time of the end. Two conditions on this. This is crazy. Two conditions on this. Number one, men, this is their actual translation, mankind will be running to and fro. And number two, the second condition is knowledge will abound. You've experienced this, a lot of you, in your lifetime. 1951 became the jet age, and man, for the first time, was able to travel transcontinental in hours. And it initiated what we know now as the transportation age. 1951, mankind, for the first time in human history, was now able to travel the globe, not by boat, but by plane. Not in months or weeks, but in hours. 1951. 1993, any techies in the room? What happened in 1993? The internet. And the internet is an information library. The information age began with 1993. So the conditions of the opening of the book of Daniel were to be met by two conditions. At no other time in history could Daniel be understood or Daniel be interpreted. But now we can. Because condition one, the transportation has been, as age has come, and now knowledge is abounding. The library of the world is now at your fingertips. You, you don't need those Encyclopedia Britannicas anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Go to the thrift store. They can't give them away. How much are those Encyclopedia for Britannicas? They're free. Just take them. We just can't get rid of these things, right? Why? Because you have an encyclopedia not just on your computer. You have it on your phone. You have the wealth of all of the world's libraries on your phone. We Google it, don't we? And it's amazing how much information is available to you at the touch of a fingertip. Knowledge has abound. That was the second condition. But go your way, Daniel. These words will be closed up and they'll be sealed to the time of the end. In other words, no one's going to really understand what's going on here. And the wicked will not understand it. So here's what he's saying. At the time of the end... The people who actually are my people that understand, they're going to start understanding this stuff. But the people who aren't believers, they will not see this coming. The non-believer will not see this coming. The freight train will be barreling right at them, and they won't see it. Lights on, horns blazing, the whole thing, thundering down the tracks. And the Bible tells us that the wise will understand, but the wicked will not see it coming. They're not. The world were going to go, Antichrist, Antichrist. He's a good guy. So what's wrong with a global currency? What's wrong with Amazon putting all of my financial data on my hand? It's biometrics. It's progress. That's happening right now. Amazon is trying. They've already got it. It's already active. It's biometrics. They, they will embed your financial data and your health data free of charge on your hand. On your hand. And they will code it to your DNA. Biometrically coded to your DNA. They'll give you a mark on the hand, the one on the forehead. I don't know what's going on with that. Maybe they're going to stamp you with an Amazon. I don't know. But the point being is the technology that the Bible has prophesied about is in your present time. It's not a barcode. It's going to be genetically encoded to you. And so what the idea with Amazon is, is if you go into one of Amazon stores, you guys ever know, you, I don't know if you all read this stuff, but you go into one of Amazon stores, they had this whole grocery store thing where they were going to scan the card in your pocket. 
So you, you would go, they would do proximity scans. So you'd go into Amazon store. There would be no checkout line. You just fill your card. Maybe you walk out the door and the, the, the proximity scan would automatically charge your card. Oh, that I'm thinking, oh, that'll work. No one will steal here at all. Right. There's not, people are so honest. No, everybody will, no, there will be no theft. So now they're taking, they're taking it out of the card and they're trying to genetically, biometrically encode it. And I have my friend, I told you this last week. I have a friend, he has a company. They just invested $250 million in this guy's company, my friend's son. And you know what he does? Exactly what I'm telling you. He's working for banks. And you know what they're doing? They're doing technology to biometrically encode that data in there. They're, they're playing around with it, where they are as far as the advancement of it. But the point not being is not whether or not it's here. It's right. It's very close. And if they can roll that out in scale, it's yet to be seen. You may not have it in America, but it's very easy to understand that some of these other countries, these dictatorships, they will mandate it. And you will not buy and sell unless you have a biometric hand compartment, just like the Bible says. You will not buy and sell because the government will not allow you to. And there's plenty of companies, there's plenty of countries. China would line up for that. Iran would line up for that. There's plenty of countries around the world that would force their people to receive a mark in order to buy and sell. You think this is fantasy land? This is here in your generation, in your hour, in your time. Right now. Come to Jesus. (laughs) It's good, man. This stuff has to happen in order for fullness to come. The consummation of all things. It has to happen. The last thing is to anoint the most holy. After the unsealing of the events, there will be an anointing of the most holy and the most holy place. In other words, when these events are unsealed, and these, these, he's going to tell you some more events, but when these events transpire, the most holy will be anointed and the most holy place will be anointed. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. I don't know if you know that. The rock star is going to be putting on the concert of the ages in Jerusalem. He's going to be rocking the temple. Right? He's coming. He's coming in fullness. And he's going to come and he will be anointed as king now and forever. Even though he already is, he's going to manifest it. And he's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. Told you last week. Say it with me. It's going to help you. It's just really going to help you. This is therapy. Say this is therapy. Right. I'm, we're going to, I'm talking to you about kingdom mindset, not cultural mindset. Right? Say this. Israel is not going back to the Palestinians. Not now, not ever. It wasn't theirs to begin with. It belongs to them. And people go, this is the argument when I taught these conversations. People go, well, the Jewish people are not perfect people and they're oppressing these. I said, listen, the faithfulness of God to the Jews in that land does not relate to them in this period of time. God is faithful to the Jews in that land, not because of them, but because of Abraham. God is faithful to the Jews in that land, not because of them, but because of David. God made a covenant with Abraham and he will not break it. God made a covenant with David and he will not break it. Regardless of what they do, they have the land. It was been given to them going all the way back to the book of Genesis. That land was given to them. Technically, the land goes all the way to the Euphrates. It goes down into Egypt and goes to the Euphrates. So if you really want to get technical, when is Iraq giving up their land? When is Egypt giving up their land? It's not when are the Jews giving up the land. It's when are the other nations giving up the land? And I know this stores a lot of political commentary on this because people look at what's going on and they feel justified to say that's not right. Well, there's a lot of injustices here, but God's justice is in faithfulness to his promises that he made to their ancestors. And he told them in the book of Ezekiel that when I bring you back, you're never going out again. You're going to leave, huh? 
fulfillment of Bible prophecy, a 2,000-year-old prophecy, was fulfilled in 1948 when the Jews came back into the land. That prophecy was established in 1951 when they, when they formed their government. 2,000 years, this nation had never been around, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here they are, just like Ezekiel prophesied. I will draw you from the four corners of the earth. I will bring you home. And he said, you're never going to do it again. Israel's going to be at the center of the news, people. You want to know end time stuff? You can't look away from Israel. Israel's going to be right smack. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be a stumbling stone. The nations will heave against Jerusalem, but they won't move it. What, What is so obsessive about a bunch of sand? You know what I'm saying? If you really think about it, like, it's not like we're going there and there's like banana crops or something. Like there's some glorious beachfront property, you know? I mean, I'm sure it's a nice place. It's a pleasant place. There's lots of archaeological things. But I don't think that there, it would, the nations aren't raging over Hawaii. You know what I'm saying? You know, if we're going to contend for something, let's like contend for like Panama or something, you know? I mean, some place, I, I don't know if you guys, <laughs> just saying. He says this. Okay, this is important. So what's happening here, God is telling him, this is what's going to happen. In this period of time, the Messiah is going to come. And then he tells him something else. Know this, therefore, that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, comes, there will be seven weeks and 62. So in other words, at the end of 69, so there's 70 weeks in between. He says at the end of the 79th period, so at the end of the 79th day period, the Messiah is going to come as king and he's going to be cut off. That is a mathematical prophecy that can be time-dated. So Daniel is now writing something that has a time date attached to it. It will be, from the going forth of this decree, it will be exactly 173,880 days. You can mark it down. That's what Daniel's saying. Is he right? There will be seven weeks. 70 weeks divided into two phases. Phase one, God news, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. That's what he tells him. Good news, Daniel. You're going home good news. They're going to rebuild the temple. You guys are going to go back in your land one more time. And when you do, this is what's going to happen, right? You're going to go back in your land. Jerusalem's going to rebuild, be rebuilt. But in that period of time, the Messiah is going to come within that period of time. And at the end of the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. What? So the Messiah is going to come for, as a king, but in that period of time, he's going to be cut off. And it says, but not for himself. In other words, Jesus is going to be cut off because he's going to be cut off for you. If you understand this in the context that this was at least 1,500 years before the prophet, at least 1,000 years before this ever happened, what are the odds? There's 360 days in the ancient calendar. Anybody here come from a culture? I know some, uh, India, do they still use 360-day calendars? They used to. And like, like there's cultures in the earth today that still operate on 360-day calendars. Most of the ancient civilizations all operated on 360-day calendars. Israel was one of them. They operated on a 360-day calendar. So on a 360-day calendar, uh, this period of 69 weeks or 69 weeks of seven comes out to 173,880 days. Exactly. After the seven and 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. So Daniel's saying, after 69 weeks, look for the Messiah. He's telling his people. After 69 weeks, the Messiah is going to come as prince. That's the key. And he will be cut off. That's why they were looking for Jesus as king. I don't know if you know how many times in the New Testament they were trying to make him king. Why were they trying to make him king? Because the prophecy, Daniel says, Messiah is going to come as king. There's only two times. You know, Jesus never allowed himself to be called king. I don't know if you know that. Except twice. Twice he did. 
when he came into the city riding on a donkey, hail son of David, hail prince of David, hail king who is worthy to sit on the throne of Jerusalem. That's what they were saying. And the Pharisees started freaking out. You're calling this guy king. You're calling him Messiah the king. Jesus said, unless the rocks cry out there, these people will, will, you know, and let they praise me, the rocks will cry out. He allowed them to call him king for the first time. The second time he allowed himself to be called king was when he was crucified. Over him hung a sign that said, here hangs Jesus, king of the Jews. He didn't protest. He didn't say, hey, could you take that sign down? He didn't. So what happens? Messiah, the prince will come. Messiah, the prince is cut off in fulfilling Daniel's prophecy. But does it, is it accurate? Two times he did it when he entered the city. Hail, son of David. And then on the cross, Zacharias says, rejoice greatly. Jesus came into the city riding on a what? Anybody know? A donkey. Where does that come from? Zechariah 9, rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout for joy, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey, having salvation, riding lowly on a donkey on the full of a court. On the full of a court. So here's what we know, right? Let me get back to the date here. On March the 14th, 445 BC, we know this is a historical fact. So this is, if you know your Bible, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah went back to the city to rebuild it. But they weren't sent back to rebuild the city. They never had permission to rebuild Jerusalem. They only had permission to build the temple. And so in the era of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra went first and Nehemiah started bringing people back to the land. And they had permission from the king of of whom they were under captivity with. They had permission only to build the temple. They couldn't do anything else but build the temple. The prophecy, according to Daniel, is not dated to the building of the temple. It's dated to the building of the city. From the time to rebuild Jerusalem. Not the, not, so the, this prophecy that Daniel is getting from the angel is not dated to the building of the temple. So Ezra and Nehemiah have permission for a long period of time to build only the temple. There were several decrees that are on record historically that Artaxerxes issued, but they were always in relationship to the temple. But <laughs> on March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Langeminus, which means the long-handed. I guess he had long fingers or something. Maybe he liked to play basketball. I don't know. He had long fingers. Artaxerxes the long-handed issued the decree for the first time to rebuild the city. Out of nowhere, now he says, okay, you guys can rebuild. And he specifically, in the, in the decree, it says he can rebuild the streets and the houses and the walls. So they, instead of just being allowed to build the temple area, they are now allowed to build the city. Now the prophecy begins. On April 6, 32 AD, exactly 173,888 days from the decree of Artaxerxes, Jesus entered the city riding on a donkey. Exactly. On, say it with me. On the day. Do you understand how accurate this is? Do you understand the, 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 the impossibility of this happening? The Lord is saying, okay, this king's going to come. He's going to sign a decree. You're going to build the temple. So Jesus always throws curveballs in here, right? So it's not a clear run at the prophecy. So there's always a curveball. So you've got to look at the language. And so the decree wasn't to build the temple. The decree was to build the city. So he's going to give you the temple first, but there's going to come a time this guy's going to let you rebuild the whole city. And when he does, 173,880 days... Messiah the Prince will come and he'll be cut off. It's exactly what happened. 173,880 days from the, from the decree of Artaxerxes, Jesus comes running in, riding into Jerusalem on a coal, representing himself as king, fulfilling Zechariah 9. And you don't think he can take care of you? 
You don't think he can organize events in your life? (laughs) Jesus is, I mean, to understand how he had, he coordinates nations into that moment. He is coordinating political time, political space, everything he's coordinating. And these people think they're in control. They're not in control. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all. He has given us delegated authority, but there are areas of life that he does not delegate. And this is one of them. Salvation was never delegated to man by the Lord. His return is never delegated by the Lord. So the Lord is in complete sovereign control over these chain of events. How did he know they were going to punch him in the face? Because the Bible says they strike me with their fists. So the Romans started punching him. They put a bag over Jesus' head and started punching him. Why? Because the prophet said they will strike me in the face. Why will they pull my beard out? They pulled Jesus' beard. Anybody here with a beard? Just Let's go over. Hey, come here, Marcus. Let's just grab a hunk and give it a good yank. They pulled the beard out of his face. Why did they do that? Because the prophet said they will pull the beard from his face. They whipped him. By his stripes were healed. Isaiah 53. He had to be beaten. There wasn't some idea that they were going to scourge him. They didn't scourge all prisoners. <laughs> but they scourged him. Why is that? They pierced his hands and his feet. Why is that? Because Psalm 22 says, they will pierce my feet and my hands. They gathered around him. They mocked him at the cross. They held, they threw dice for his clothes. Why did they do that? Because the Bible says they cast lots for my garment. He coordinates the whole thing. Divinely coordinated. No man takes my life. I lay it down. Lays it down. And if you don't think that God can order the sequence of these events to bring Jesus into the city, one hundred and said, that's every, the whole time he's talking, they want to make him king. What did he say? My time hasn't come. My time hasn't come. My time hasn't come. But here it came. 173,888 days. You don't think Jesus knew the math? He knew the math. He knew the math. He actually condemns them in the end. He tells them in Luke, he tells them the, the, the hour will come when this temple will be thrown down. All of these things that you have will be taken from you, which is the latter part of the prophecy of Daniel. So Jesus comes riding on a donkey, fulfilling Daniel. And then he speaks the word of Daniel back to the people. And he says, the temple will be toned down, not one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not discern the hour of your visitation. What does that mean? You, okay, ready? Look around the room. We are accountable to know the scriptures. I mean, the church thinks if they give you a lollipop and a pinwheel that they're doing their job. Not according to heaven's eyes. He held them accountable, particularly their leadership, to know the hour of their visitation. How were they to know the hour of their visitation? Because it was plainly written in a book that they studied by day and by night. I never see the Jews study the Bible. By day and by night, they don't even study the Bible anymore. They study the teachings of rabbis. So the Bible's off the... But they'll read a rabbi's book now. They don't even read the Bible, which is crazy. So they were expected to know. We're expected to understand certain things, Christians. This is why I try to do my best to teach you. And you not only you're supposed to understand it, you know what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to teach you. Preach the word, whether it's popular or not. In season and out. This, so like when I stand before Jesus, he's going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold every single pastor to this same standard. And some of them are going to be shocked that Jesus is actually holding them accountable to the standard that he presented. He said, did you preach the word in season? Did you preach the word in, out of season? Did you say what I told you to say, whether people liked it or not? No, Lord, I just pretty much talked to the people about what they wanted to hear. That's all I did. All should not seek to be teachers for such will face a stricter judgment. 
I'm going to be examined, not because I taught you what I wanted to teach you. I'm going to be examined because I'm supposed to teach you what he told me to teach you. I'm going to be examined, not because I teach the popular word of the day. I'm going to be examined because do I hear the heart of the Lord on the matter? And have I effectively communicated that to his people? I'm going to be judged. I get double time for y'all. Right? Y'all are going to be accountable because we all do. We're not accountable unto judgment. We're accountable unto reward. You understand? Salvation is secure. Your position in Christ is established. With the positions of honor in the kingdom lay in front of you for you to obtain. Salvation is given. How far do you want to go? Right? So people are like, well, I'm just content to sit in the stands, brother. I'm happy to be I'm just a doorkeeper. Not me. Not if he told me I can have the mountain. He dares you to want more. And as a believer, you can have more. In Christ, you're accepted. So our assessment, when we stand before the Lord, he is going to assess, assess us, not on the basis of salvation, because he knows we belong to him. He's going to assess you, ready, on what you did with your life. What did you do with the knowledge that I gave you? What did you do with the opportunity that I put before you? And there's minimum standards and there's higher standards. And he absolutely expects us to meet the minimum standard. If you don't believe it, read the parable of the talents. <laughs> That's not a pleasant story. The guy who didn't do anything, what happened? He lost everything, didn't he? He had no reward, none at all, right? <laughs> My challenge to you is do something with what you have. Who are you? What has God called you to? What is passion in your heart? What do you feel that God has set before you? He said, I don't feel like he's done anything to me before me. Well, then the first thing you need to do is learn him. First thing you need to do is grow in him. Learn him, grow in him, develop him, but do not stay as you are. American Christianity is sorely, sorely neglectful. We are really, really neglectful of the things that God has given. I'm telling you, the church is, I'm all in, look, I like entertainment. Okay, say this with me. Pastor Kevin likes entertainment. If we have a bigger stage, I'd like a smoke machine rolling out here, man. Woo! I'll preach the word from a smoke machine. I'm all in, but I'm going to preach the word. I'll preach the word from a light show, but I'm going to preach the word. I'm not going to tickle you, you know. I mean, it's all fun. We can laugh and have fun. You, you understand what I'm trying to tell you? My, my point, I guess, in this matter is that God has a lot more than what we've settled for. And his expectation over us and towards us is a lot more than what we've settled for. You, he believes more in you than you believe in yourself. That's the point you've got to come to. He looks at you and says, I, I, man, I've called you to be this. This is who you are. Why do you settle for second when I've called you to be higher? I've given you opportunity to grow. Why do you settle for this? Why, Gideon, do you eat handfuls of wheat in a mill when I've called you to conquer? That's what we do. We're like Gideon. Gideon was afraid, eating grain in a wine press, which means he was neglecting the grain and he was neglecting the wine. What? He was doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. There was no wine in the wine press and there was no grain in the mill. Grain is the word of God. The, 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 the wine is the spirit of God. We're to take from both. We're to be threshing the grain and we're to be, we're to be making the wine. We're to be participating in both. Hopefully I'm not shooting this over your head. So the Messiah will be cut off not from himself. So here's the last part and I'm going to end it here. We'll take, pick it up again next week. Do you guys, did you guys get anything out of this? Right? Okay. <laughs> I run the risk of getting really technical, but you know what I think? I think you can handle it, right? I think you're some intelligent people, right? God gave you a brain. He didn't check it at the door, right? Not talk to you like little two-year-old. You know? 
I believe in calling people higher. That's what I believe. I believe in saying this is the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Reach for it. I believe this is who God says you are and this is who God says you can be. Reach for it. I believe God has deep and profound knowledge, but by the Spirit you can understand it. I believe that. 100%. I don't believe people, people, God's people are morons. I don't believe that at all. You have the mind of Christ. How could you possibly be, be dumb? Right? You, you can't be dumb. You're not. No such thing. So the last part of this prophecy is God's telling him, listen, the Messiah is going to be cut off 173,880 days on the day, cut off, crucified. That's what's going to happen. He enters the city. And after that happens, he tells him this. This is a crazy story to me, right? This little part right here. Because the, 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 the angel goes to him, Daniel, go your way. But Daniel keeps asking questions. If you read the story, Daniel keeps asking questions, right? And so the angel's like, dude, just go your way. And then he's like, oh, all right. And then he gives him this other part. If you know anything about the Holy Spirit, he stops talking when you stop asking questions. If you don't ask the question, he's not answering it. This is how the Holy Spirit works. But if you will ask the question, he will engage you with the question. He'll give you an answer. He'll say, Alex will go, I don't know. Uh, What should I do this afternoon? And he may go, blue. And you'll go, blue? Oh my gosh. Where's the blue? I got to look around for blue. Anybody with blue, blue, blue? But if you go, Holy Spirit, what about blue? Look for the person in the blue shirt. Feel like you'll look for the person in the blue shirt. Okay, what do I do when I find the person in the blue shirt? Ask him to go to lunch. You know, this, but he didn't tell you that off the rip. He tells you that in the context of relationship. This is how you talk to the Holy Spirit. I'm teaching you how to talk to the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Say this. If I'm a believer, I can hear the Holy Spirit. That's right. My sheep hear my voice. You can hear him. You can hear him. Yes, he speaks through the word, but he will speak to you interpersonally and in dimensions and dynamics if you'll ask him. But he'll give you an answer, and you have to ask him about the answer. This is what Daniel's doing. Daniel keeps answering questions, asking questions, and then the angel goes, okay, the Messiah will be cut off, the prince that was to come, and they're going to destroy the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and the end of the war of desolation shall be determined. In other words, this is when he's telling him that when the Messiah's cut off, the temple's going to be destroyed, but it's not over. In AD 70, Titus marched his legions into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They didn't plan on destroying the temple. So 70 years after Jesus was crucified, the Romans, because the Jews wouldn't get along, they wouldn't obey, right? They wouldn't listen. And the the Romans were all about Pax Romana. So they're like, look, if you all just be cool, you can live in your land, you can worship your God. You're the only people that we let worship their own God. Everybody else had to worship the emperor. You can worship whoever you wanted, but, it, but you're the only people that we've exempted from worshiping the emperor. So just stay in your country and just be cool and everything will go good. Well, 70 years after Jesus, the zealots rebelled. Uh, Titus marches the legions in and, and one of the, they were, they, because the temple was covered with gold. This is Solomon's temple we're talking about here. And it was covered in gold and the Romans wanted the gold. And so they threw a torch in there and they burned it down by accident and because they burned it down what happens to, what happens to the gold when it gets hot it melts so all of the gold melted into the stone and Titus is not leaving there without the gold so what did they do they tore the temple down brick by brick just like Jesus told them they're going to te- they're going to tear this temple down and not one stone will be left in its place why because some crazy roman threw a, threw a torch in there and burned it and Titus is like no and all the gold melted. And they're like, okay, good news. The gold's still there. Bad news is now you guys get to tear the whole thing down brick by brick. And they tore the temple down brick by brick, just like the Bible says. 
Then he says the last week is going to be confirmed by a guy called the Antichrist. The Antichrist. He's going to come. What are we looking for with this Antichrist? I'll get into this more next week. I'm just closing it. This is the second part of the week, right? So 69 weeks are fulfilled here. The burning down of the temple, the cutting off of the Messiah, 69 weeks are fulfilled. No more temple worship. It's over. Now we're in this period of in-between. There's a whole other story behind that, which I won't get into. But there's one week that remains. The seven, anybody ever heard of the 70th week of Daniel? Have you ever heard that terminology? There's one prophetic week that's fulfilled. And this last week, this last period of seven years, brings the consummation of Jesus. When does the seven weeks begin? He tells us, with the signing of a covenant by an antichrist, a world leader and I'll talk about it next week, will come into Jerusalem and in Israel. There's going to be the peace plan that rocks all peace plans. Arabs and Jews are going to get it wrong for the first time ever. There's going to be some outrageous peace plan. It says this, he will confirm a covenant with many, including the Jews, in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years. He will bring an end to the sacrifice, which means there'll be a temple in Jerusalem. He cannot bring an end to the sacrifice if there's no temple. He will build the temple. They will, the temple will be built. They will be doing blood sacrifices on the Temple Mount. Lambs, goats, sheep, pigeons, the whole deal. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. This Antichrist will come. He'll break the covenant. And on the wings of abomination, he will make desolation until the consummation, which is determined. In other words, he's going to come. Jesus said what he's going to do. He comes. He puts an end to the evening sacrifices. He stands in the holy place. There cannot, he cannot stand in the holy place unless there actually is a holy place. The holy place exists in the temple. Therefore, everybody say it. The temple must be rebuilt. All right. When you see a temple going up, I don't care if it's in your lifetime. Mom, what's going to happen? When's Jesus coming back? I don't know all the details, but one thing I do know, if you only know this, this is good. When they start building a temple in Jerusalem, it's getting pretty serious. They will build a temple. And when they build that temple, they've got it ready to go. I told you that last week. That temple is ready to go. They'll have it up probably in under 30 days. They have it. It's tilt up construction. They're going to come there and they're going to tilt it up and they'll have that thing up in 30 days. They won't cut a stone on the Temple Mount because the Bible forbids them from cutting a stone on the Temple Mount. What took them decades to build, they'll do it in 30 days. Because we have the technology now to lift precast walls. They're just going to haul the wall up there, tilt the wall up, bolt it together, put a roof on. Isn't that interesting? How are they going to do it so quickly? Because we have the technology to not cut stones. They will not cut it. The, the Bible forbids them from cutting a stone. There's no, no stone to be cut on the Temple Mount, so they won't cut a stone. You don't have to worry about it. You're going to truck it in. And the Jews already know this. And so the Hasidim's already got it figured out. They got it all figured out. They got it ready to go. Hey, man, remember that precast order we had waiting for you? It's go time. And so they're going to, you know, they'll initiate it. When they get permission to build the temple, which they will, it'll go up very quickly. Like that. And that is a signal of something not good. <laughs> not good for them, not good for the world, but very good for the believer. Because it is near the consummation and the fullness of all things. And that's what we want, Christian. There's no king like Jesus. And the final week will begin with a signing of a treaty by a world leader and will bring the consummation of all things. So what my conclusion is this, and I'm completely done. I'll get into that a little bit more next week. But if you don't know Jesus, this is a great time to do so. Not because of fear, but because of knowledge. Knowing that this is where it's going, why would you neglect the offer that he gives you? 
And so we're going to pray a prayer and you all pray with, we're going to pray together. But if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, or you're not sure that you've ever given your life to Christ, today's your day. We're going to pray together. You're not alone. You're with all, you're with brothers and sisters who love you. And all of us have prayed this prayer at some time. Every single believer has prayed this prayer. Everyone. We have to believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. We all do. You don't marry your wife without saying anything. You know what I'm talking about? I don't have any words, honey. You better find some. (laughs) Come on, let's open our hearts. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are Savior. Say this, I believe you're coming again. We're going to say what the ancients used to say. I want you to say this, Maranatha, which means come now, Lord. And I need a Savior. I don't understand everything, but I choose to believe it. And so open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. And here's the exchange. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Say, is that it? Nope, that's the start of it. We're going to have a prayer team available. I'm out of time. We're going to have a prayer team available if you need prayer. So we've got about 13 minutes in between services. And if you need prayer, there'll be a prayer team available. For anything that you need, they will most graciously pray for you. And then let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.